49, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 592 in the Black Bibles you were handed when you came in. Please join me now for a prayer for illumination. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was, while I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This is the word of the Lord. Sylvia Boomsma, our church administrator, has copies of the sermon manuscript. If any of you would like to follow along, there are some imperfections, but I don't think that they will make you stumble too much. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, in December of 1947, a young Catholic missionary nun named Sister Mary Teresa wrote a letter to her bishop describing a vision that she'd had. Jesus was calling her to begin a new kind of work, and in her vision, Sister Mary Teresa was resisting the call. In her own words, here's what she kept saying to Jesus. What you ask is beyond me. I can hardly understand half of the things that you want. I'm unworthy. I'm sinful. I'm weak. Please go, Jesus, and find a more worthy soul, a more generous soul. And as she reports it, this is what Jesus said back to her. I know. 
I know who you are. You're the most incapable person. You're weak. And you're sinful. But just because that's what you are, I want to use you for my glory. And then he asked her, will you refuse? Will you keep on refusing me? Obviously, she was troubled by that. Obviously, she thought about it, and she didn't keep refusing. And Sister Mary Teresa followed the call of Jesus to serve the poor of Calcutta. And today, we know her very well as Mother Teresa, or as the Roman Catholic Church now calls her, Saint Teresa of Calcutta. That's not the end of the story. When the journals and letters of Mother Teresa were published after her death, they revealed another side of her encounter and her relationship with God. In a letter dated 1961, Mother Teresa described a darkness and an emptiness to her soul that was kind of shocking to some of the people that didn't know her. Here's what she wrote. The darkness is so great that I don't see anything neither with my mind nor with my reason. The place of God in my soul is blank. There is no God in me. The pain of longing is so great. I just long and long for God. She described that longing as torture and pain that she couldn't explain. Well, that's a hard thing. That's a deep darkness. And I think it's an important thing to acknowledge that this can be part of the way people experience walking with God and serving God. And maybe you walk through that dark valley sometimes. You're not alone if you are. Not only is God with you, whether you know it or not, in those times of darkness, but many others are there or have been there. Through the ages, men and women who have walked with God have left us a record of a deep faith that wrestles with deep doubt and deep frustration. You can find examples in the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Naomi, David, as well as in the New Testament, John the Baptist, Mary and Martha, the Apostle Paul. You can find examples from the Middle Ages, Hildegard of Bingen, St. John of the Cross, and from more modern times, William Cooper, the songwriter, Anne Lamott, the novelist and journalist, C.S. Lewis, and of course, Mother Teresa. Every human heart, yours, mine, and everyone else's, can become a contested space between a sense of calling and conviction and a sense of doubt and despair, of futility and failure. And sometimes, here's the hardest thing, I think. Sometimes the more deeply a person seeks to embody God's purposes, the stronger that sense of conflict grows. Faith is not just believing what's easy to believe when it's comfortable to believe it. Faith is also, maybe more so, believing what's hard to believe at times when it's hard to believe it. Faith often, perhaps always, coexists with frustration. And a sense of calling is often accompanied by second thoughts and second guessing. There's light, but the light shines in a real darkness. 
I'd like to take this as an entry point into Isaiah 49 this morning. And I think you can see, I'm not just making this up or faking it or, or, or using this as a tool. Some of the things I've been talking about are built right into the structure of this second servant song and the experience of calling and mission that the servant himself narrates for us in this second servant song. This one isn't so much a song about the servant as it is a song of the servant. This is autobiographical. As we listen to this passage, I want to look at three things about the servant's sense of calling and the servant's mission. First, the thing I've been talking about, the frustration and difficulty that seem to be built right into that mission. But then I want to look at the resilient faith and faithfulness that sustain the mission and the heart of the servant. And finally, I want to look at the scope of the mission and especially how we share in it where we might actually fit into this servant song. Before I go too much farther, though, I do want to point out that there is something, although there's something common to the experience of human beings who walk with God, there's also something very unique about this person and this calling that we're hearing about this morning. Jim and I are studying these four passages in Isaiah and some other related texts. But these four are called the servant songs. They describe the work of a person who is uniquely set apart for God's purposes, the servant of the Lord. And that's why they're called the servant songs. But we were introduced to the servant last week in the first servant song in Isaiah 42. And maybe you remember how that passage begins. Here is my servant, God is speaking, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. That's how the Lord introduces his servant to the world. The second servant song, the one we're studying this morning, picks up that theme, only this time we get it from the servant's point of view as the servant looks back and remembers the calling he received from the Lord. Look at verse 3. He said to me, the Lord said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That sounds like the voice of faith, looking back on the promises the Lord made to his servant. But something must have happened somewhere to shake that confidence because listen to the very next words the servant speaks. But I said, in this dialogue with God, recalled for us, but I said I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. That sounds like the voice of despair, not faith, but futility and frustration. And in this case, this is particularly alarming because this struggle is not just a minor skirmish in the battle between God and God's enemies. This is the servant of the Lord. This struggle is at the front line and at the strategic center of the battle between good and evil, between salvation and destruction, between faith and futility, between the success and the failure of God's purposes. The servant uniquely embodies God's purposes. This is God's chosen one speaking. This is the one appointed and anointed to bring 
good news to the poor, to bring justice and hope to the nation. So if the servant succeeds, God's purposes succeed. And if he fails, well, we don't even want to think about that. This is the one we heard about in last week's passage, the first servant song. Maybe you remember the words, he will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Only now he seems to be growing faint. He seems to be faltering. His wick, his own wick seems to be sputtering. Is the mission of the servant tilting towards failure? Well, no. And let's figure out why. Let me point out two things that happen here. And the first thing, and and these are not just interesting observations. These are useful, practical things that will sustain us in our struggles too. The first thing that happens is on the servant's side. The servant doesn't get stuck in his despair. He acknowledges it, but he doesn't concede to it, doesn't stay in it. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing, and vanity is not the end of the servant's speech. Listen to the whole thing. I said I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity, yet surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. We're seeing and hearing, listening in, as the Lord's servant consciously exercises his faith, chooses to have faith, talks himself out of despair, and preaches himself back into confidence. If you listen to John Piper's sermons, you hear him say that a lot. You need to preach to yourself as you read the Word of God. Now, this teaches us something important about faith how, and how to exercise faith. Faith isn't just this feeling that you have or maybe that goes away. Faith is also an act of the will, a will that we exert. Faith is a labor of the heart that we engage in Faith is an exercise of our minds that we need to employ. We need to fill our minds with this kind of thinking that we're seeing modeled for us in the speech of the servant. And faith leans towards, leans on, and to use a phrase you hear a lot these days, leans into a real object. Faith is not just a fantasy. Faith is based on real things, real promises, the real words and the real acts and the real character of a real God. But what if you aren't at the moment actually experiencing God in the right now, in the hurt, in the uncertainty? Then there is something you can do, and we see it here. You can engage in something that theologians call Anamnesis, that's a really fancy word that just means remembering, thinking about what you already know, calling to mind what you already have heard and seen and experienced in the past. It's one important way to handle times of suffering and times of doubt. And, And times of doubt are moments of weakness. Sometimes it's like those times when you're you're too sick to eat, but what you need is to eat. Sometimes you just have to force yourself to do it. 
instead of talking about it abstractly, let me give you an example of it from another passage in the Bible. There's, there's hardly a sadder, more sorrowful, grimmer book in the Bible than the book we call Lamentations. In practically the very center of the book, while the, the writer is narrating his misery, the gravel in my teeth, I remember my afflictions, the wormwood, the bitter taste in my mouth and in my soul. Right in the middle of that we get this, and you've all heard it before, I think, but hear it again. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His mercies are new every morning. And the last words he speaks, he speaks directly to God. Great is your faithfulness. That's anamnesis. It's a means of grace that restores faith. That's what's going on in verse 4 when the servant says, Yet surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward is is with my God. Anamnesis is one of the most important things that we do when we gather for worship. And one of the worst things you can do if if you're feeling darkness in your life and you'll be tempted to do it is to stop going to church, to stop gathering, to stop coming here because you're not feeling it. Don't do that. The things that we do when we gather here for worship are important. We tell the story again. We listen to the word. We eat the bread. We drink the cup. We stand in the company of people who might be stronger than we are right now. We can lean on them. We remember together what the Lord has done for us and in us and through us and to us. And that could hold us up until we're healthy enough to hold ourselves up. Anamnesis. But there's another thing going on in this passage. And this one points to God's activity. Anamnesis is us reaching up to God trying to keep the momentum going. But God is also always reaching down to us. Yes, the servant in this passage speaks to himself a word of encouragement and remembers where his help comes from and the one it comes from. But God also is active in this passage. And God, before our eyes and in our ears, speaks a new word to the servant. And it's not just a new word. It's a greater word. Now the Lord says, this is verse 5 now, and now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant. There's a little touch of anamnesis there, right? Who formed me to bring Jacob back to him and called me that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God has become my strength. But now he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations and so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Sometimes this is what our gracious God does for people when they seem to be faltering. He doesn't just leave them on their own to recover their faith for themselves or remind them, or to rediscover things that they already know. Sometimes God helps them more actively. Sometimes God tells people things that they didn't already know. I hope sometimes that happens for you in sermons. It happens for me in sermons. When, when I hear something, I think, this is great. That's there in God's Word. That's there in my today, and I'd never noticed it before. 
The two best examples I know of in Scripture of this are Elijah and John the Baptist. Elijah, after this moment of triumph, has this moment of faltering when Queen Jezebel threatens him and he runs for his life. It's not just the fear of death and suffering that makes him run away. It's despair. It's the sense that after all this, nobody's turning to the Lord. All this work I've done has been in vain. All Israel, despite what they've seen, despite what they've experienced, have gone over to worship Baal, and I'm the only one left. And when I die, that'll be it. There will be no more true religion in the world. So God brings Elijah to the top of Mount Carmel, and I'm making a ridiculous short work of a great, great story in 1 Kings 18 and 19. You should, you should all read it. But Elijah up there has this new encounter with God, where God, among other things, and this is certainly not the whole of it, but this is one thing. God says, Elijah, you're not the only one. I have kept for myself seven thousand people it's probably a symbolic number you know seven times ten times ten times however many you know people who have not bowed the knee to Baal now go back and minister to those people go on and anoint a successor to carry on your work and this message isn't just based on words it's based on facts those seven thousand people were there God was working in their lives too. Elisha was there ready to be anointed. God even sent him to anoint the king of a foreign nation because God is the God of all nations. John the Baptist's dark moment comes. After all his triumphant testimony about Jesus and his very fruitful ministry, his baptism of repentance, his dark night of the soul comes when Herod throws him in prison. And John starts to wonder if the things he was saying prophetically about Jesus especially were really true. Like these messianic things, are they, are they happening? Here I am sitting in prison. So John sends his disciples to Jesus to say, what's up? The script's not playing out the way it's supposed to. And Jesus says to John's disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. And again, these aren't just words. This isn't just a feel-good message. This is what Jesus says to a couple of people who have hung out with him and watched him. Go back to John and tell him what you see going on. And think about how this played out in the life of Jesus in his moments of faltering or testing. Jesus had words to remember and rely on when he was tested in the wilderness. You don't live only on bread, but on every word that comes from God's mouth. Jesus reflected on the scriptures. Jesus was well acquainted with the acts of God. And Jesus, I'm sure, also at important moments in his ministry, looked back or received in the moment words that God spoke to him. The words God spoke in his baptism, echoes of the servant songs, right? You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And on some occasions that we know of, probably many that we don't know about, God spoke new words to Jesus. Jesus heard those same words again on the Mount of Transfiguration. You are my son, whom I love. And just before he entered Jerusalem to suffer and to die, Jesus prayed, Father, 
glorify your name. Be glorified in me, the servant. And the Father's voice spoke from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And once again, these weren't just words. They pointed to facts and to acts of a real God. In the end, God did glorify his name by raising Jesus from the dead, the greatest of all God's acts. We have to acknowledge that sometimes there is a very painful and excruciatingly long gap between the word of assurance. If it comes, and especially if it doesn't come, the time when God speaks, the time when God makes promises, the gap between that and the act when God actually fulfills the words of promise. We all experience that to some degree, waiting for the Lord, the not yet. Jesus experienced that in a way that we never have and never need to experience it. His cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? wasn't just a quotation of a psalm. It was his experience. It was a cry that came out of the deepest darkness that anyone has ever experienced. And I, that is not an exaggeration. I defy anyone to think of a greater moment of suffering and agony and darkness than Jesus on the cross. But God did not abandon Jesus to that darkness. And he won't abandon us to whatever darkness we experience. I don't feel like we have a lot of time left this morning, and I've given you a lot to think about already, but let me come back to Isaiah 59, or 49 and point out just one last thing. The new word from the Lord that comes to the servant adds a new scope to the mission of the servant. It's not just Israel. It's all the nations of the earth. God wants His salvation to reach to the end of the earth. It's not really a new idea. Saving all the nations was God's idea all along. When God chose Abraham, He promised that by His offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But it's a new way of implementing that through the being and the life and the calling and the mission of the servant. I want to point out just this that we're part of that mission now, even if we're 2,000 years removed from it. I want to suggest that as this mission grows in scope, so does opposition to the mission. It doesn't necessarily get easier. There will be ongoing frustration and futility as we try to live out God's purposes in our time, in our place, in our hearts, and in our lives. But let's find some good news in this because it's there. This isn't just an imposition. This is just a connection that needs to be made. If Jesus is our high priest, if he's come down from his heavenly bliss to enter the frustration and the futility willingly and fully, if he's been tempted in every way as we are, as it tells us is the case in Hebrews 4, Jesus has known all of this pain that we know. That he knows our weakness and he's able to help us in our weakness. Remembering that 
is one of the greatest acts of anamnesis I can think of. Remembering that the one who shared our life is now our advocate at the right hand of God the Father. He's one of us. He knows what it's like to walk our walk in this broken world. And because he's at the right hand of God, because he's exalted, because he's enthroned and empowered, he can also help us from above. He can speak to us new words of grace. He can do new acts of grace on our behalf. He can make and does make all things work together for our good. And yes, he may ask us to share a part, a small part of his suffering, but he will share with us an overflowing share of his glory. If we find ourselves engaged and drawn into his mission and, to the, and the frustration and suffering that will inevitably be part of it in a world that resists salvation, it's just as true, it's more true that we will also find ourselves sharing in his vindication. And that's what I want to end with. Just in the very middle of the last verse of this morning's passage, verse 7. Listen to this incredible reversal of fortune. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, kings shall see. To, to, to the one overlooked, kings will. The one disregarded, kings will give their regard to him. To the one who's abhorred by the nations, princes shall stand up and honor him. To the one who made himself the slave, not just of rulers, but the slave of slaves, everyone shall prostrate themselves, shall bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So sometimes we think of God laying this big burden on us and saying, Will you refuse? Will you participate in my mission? Will you do some of this hard work or will you refuse? But let's also remember that God is also offering us an incredible share in his glory. Will you refuse that? I'm going to steal a, a trick, a line from Jim. He says at the end of his sermons, do you believe this? So I'm going to ask you, do you believe this? Yeah. Let's believe that together. Will you pray with me? Thank you, O oh Lord Jesus, that you aren't just some heavenly icon. You're real. Your humanity was real. Your suffering was real. But so was your victory. And so is your glory. So Lord, we pray us, we pray that you'll sustain us with that knowledge of what you've done for us and that you will speak new words in new ways and make yourself known to us according to our new needs as they arise. We pray that you will sustain us and give us willing hearts so that we may say yes, both to the suffering that you invite us to share 
but also to the glory which is your inheritance from the Father that you delight to share with your brothers and sisters, with us. Father, we ask these things through your Son, through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.